Today's scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verse 10 to 21. Let's turn your Bible or turn on your Bible to Luke 13, verse 10 to 21. I'll be reading from ESV. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your disability. And he, said his, <clears throat> and he laid his hand on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or, or, or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid it in, in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of God. Thanks, Song, for reading God's Word for us. Uh, good to see you all here. Uh, actually, I can actually say that. Good to see you all here. Such a nice change to be able to gather physically as God's people. So thanks for coming uh, this Lord's Day to be with us. Uh, to those of us at home, uh, we hope that you're able to also gather with us physically at some point as well. Uh, let me pray for us as we continue our look at Luke's Gospel together. Let's all pray and prepare our hearts to receive His Word. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you are God who has spoken. And Father, we thank you that you speak clearly and you delight in revealing yourself uh, to your people to show, to show us who you are, what you're like, and how we can draw near to you. And Father, indeed, we thank you for how you've drawn near to us first through your Son. And we pray that as we come to your word, we pray that you would reveal Christ to us in his glory. Help us to see him as uh, your sovereign King, Help us to turn to Him, to trust Him, uh, to follow Him, and to find in Him uh, true hope and rest. And we pray this in His name. Amen. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. I'm dating myself by quoting this song, but some of you may recognize the words of this song. It's by the birds, 
uh, called Turn, Turn, Turn. It's from 1965. Uh, and even if you haven't heard the words of this song before, the lyrics might still be familiar to you because they're taken from the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1. And this is a fundamental truth about life. There is a time and season for everything. And as a parent, this is what I tell my sons all the time. It's breakfast time, you may not have ice cream. It's homework time, you may not watch TV. It's a school night, you may not stay up late. It's bedtime, you may not have ice cream. So in order to do the right thing, we have to know what time it is, right? I mean, we, we understand that. We, we do things that are appropriate for the time. So in, in, in life, we keep up with the news. We follow trends. We follow social media. Uh, we track financial markets. We follow property prices. We keep a close watch on the economy. We follow political developments here and overseas, and we do more. All, all that in order to understand the times in which we live in. We may be aware of all that's happening in the world today, but do we know what time it is according to God's timetable? So far in Luke's Gospel, we have been journeying with Jesus as he travels to Jerusalem, and he has resolved to go to the cross. He set his face to the cross, to Jerusalem, and as we go with Jesus along the way, he teaches us what it means to follow him as his disciples. And a vital part of following Jesus is to know the time. A vital part of following Jesus is to know the time. And to know the time as he defines it, as God defines it. You know, this is the reason why Jesus says to the crowds, if you look up to Luke chapter 12, verse 56, he, he admonishes the crowds, right? He says to them in Luke 12, 56, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, so you're very good at following worldly trends, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? You follow the economy, uh, you follow social media, you, you follow uh, trends, you, you follow fashions, you follow politics, but why do you not know the time? Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And so we've seen in Luke 12 and 13, Jesus has been telling us about the time so that we will be ready for his return. Right? You, you see him exhorting his followers to be ready for the master. And then he tells us in the beginning of chapter 13 that the time is urgent. Unless we repent and turn back to God through Jesus Christ, we will perish. Right? That, that's another marker of time for us at the beginning of chapter 13. And then this, this theme continues in our passage, and Jesus doesn't just explain the time, he shows us what the time is. You know, in this passage, uh, a, a miracle is recorded for us for the first time since chapter 11, and there's a purpose why this miracle appears here in this part of Luke's gospel. Jesus demonstrates by this sign the time. And he shows that he is God's promised king who brings God's kingdom. And this is the time of the kingdom. 
But the kingdom comes in a surprising way, in a way that we don't expect. So in, in this passage, Jesus urges us to pay close attention because we, if, because we will not get the king if we don't get the kingdom. Right? So we need to know what the kingdom of God is like, what time it is. So we're going to work through this passage just in two points, uh, just focusing on how the kingdom of God is here. So point one, God's kingdom is already here, but the religious are offended. So our passage begins with Jesus teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, which is a Saturday, and you see that in verse 10. And this being the synagogue, we expect many prominent religious leaders and teachers to be present. It's a gathering of the religious uh, leaders of that society, of, of that place. But surprisingly, Luke focuses on someone we'd probably overlook in a distinguished setting like that. You know, that's why he starts off uh, by saying, Behold, right, look out for this, pay attention, take note. Behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 long years. That's a, that's a long time, right? It's a generational disability, right? And she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Verse 11. Now, in the culture of those days, men wouldn't pay attention to women in public. So this is quite a surprising twist in Luke's gospel where he focuses our attention not on the leaders, but on this woman who, for all intents and purposes, would just have been another face in the crowd. And how much more a woman with a severe disability, maybe the kind of person that we kind of shy away from in any setting. You know, in, indeed, even the woman herself uh, says nothing in, in our text. Uh, she herself isn't seeking any attention. Uh, there are no words from her that are recorded by Luke. She doesn't even ask Jesus for a healing. She's just there and possibly just attending the synagogue on maybe something that she was, she was accustomed to do all her life. Luke doesn't tell us anything about her faith either. We really don't know very much about the woman apart from her disability. But Jesus is the good shepherd who knows his sheep, and he sees the woman, and he calls her over. Uh, that's a surprise as well. Jesus takes the initiative to move towards this woman, and he shows his grace and mercy to her. You know, he doesn't wait for her to make the first move, but he's the God who draws near. He's the God who delights in drawing near to his people, even uh, taking the initiative to do so. Indeed, Scripture tells us we love Him because He first loved us. And friends, we can come to Jesus with full assurance and complete confidence. He will not turn us away because He is the kind of God who delights to draw near. And if we draw near to Him by faith, He will not turn us away. And we see Jesus' compassion encompassing the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized and the oppressed. Now, society may have neglected this disabled woman, but Jesus pays attention. Jesus moved towards her in love. I, I think we can learn from this as well as followers of Jesus. How do we reflect his character by also moving towards others in grace 
mercy and love, especially those who are poor, vulnerable, marginalized, and oppressed. You know, this, as Sien Chai prayed earlier in this season of the pandemic, uh, we have much opportunity to do this as, his, as God's people, and may we do so just as Jesus does. Uh, Jesus says to the woman, you are freed. Interesting choice of word. You are freed from your disability. And then laying his hands on her, she's immediately made straight. And Jesus did for her what she could not do for herself. And after 18 long, you can imagine, 18 long and painful years, 18 years, she finally is able to stand straight after 18 long years. And she's finally been released from the shackles of sickness. But, but this text makes an interesting point about her healing. Uh, the, the words of this passage reveal that an even greater healing has taken place. Because this woman's problem is not only physical, she has a spiritual problem as well. Uh, notice how her disability is described in the text. Verse 16, she had a disabling spirit, uh, a spirit of weakness. Uh, sorry, in verse 16, Jesus says these words about her. Satan had bound her. Interesting, Satan had bound her. And Jesus sets her free from spiritual slavery. So she has a physical ailment, but, but that reveals an even deeper problem, which is this spiritual slavery to Satan. Now, this, this little account actually tells us not just about the woman, but this account tells us a lot about the state of the world in which we live in. Now, you want to know the time? Now, this, this passage is a very good one for knowing the times in which we live. So, a bit of background. God is the creator, and when he created the world, it was perfect. Now, Genesis tells us that all things were good when God made all things. And God made us for himself to enjoy him in his good creation. And then the Bible goes on to say that we have all turned away from him. And in our pride and self-centeredness, we've tried to live without God. You know, we've kind of removed God from our lives. And the Bible calls this rejection of God sin. Now imagine you're, you're building a, a building, you know, and an architect's design has been given to you, an engineer's blueprint has been given to you, and, and you are the builder of this building. Imagine you, you, you have these documents in front of you, and then you willfully choose to ignore them. Right? Say, okay, you know, thanks, thanks for this, but no thanks. I'm just going to build the building myself because I want to have the freedom to do what I want. I imagine what will happen to the building. Right? So you willfully reject the architect's blue design, you willfully reject the engineer's blueprint. You know, the outcome of the construction will be disastrous. Right? The building will not stand. And friends, this is what we've done in our rejection of God. He's made all things. In fact, He's given us His design, and we've said, thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather build this myself. So it's no surprise that our rejection of God has dire consequences for the world. Things are not what they're supposed to be. I don't, I, I don't think I need to prove it to us that this world is broken. Instead of goodness, there is evil. 
Instead of love, there is hatred. Instead of joy, there is sorrow. Instead of health and life, there is disease and death, as this woman shows us in this passage. And the world's fallenness and brokenness is evidence that Satan holds it captive. So this world is not free in that sense. This world is held captive by the devil because of our brokenness and our fallenness. But the good news is that God in His mercy and grace sends His Son, Jesus, to restore His creation, to free us from our slavery to Satan, sin, and death. And at the start of His earthly ministry, also in the synagogue in Luke 4, Jesus quoted these verses from Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So quoting from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. You know, that's a time stamp right there. This is the year of the Lord's favour, right? That's the time. The time has come to set the captives free. And that's why he adds in that, in that sermon, in that synagogue in Luke 4, he says, today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. The time has come for these things to happen. So what is Jesus saying? He's, he's saying that I am the promised king. I am the promised king who is full of God's spirit. And Jesus has come with the express purpose of defeating the devil and to set the prisoners free. Free from the grasp of the devil, free from sin, free from death. And so he says in chapter 11 of Luke's Gospel, verses 20 to 22, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Another time stamp there in Luke 11. And then he, he describes this casting out the demon in, in, a very, uh, in, in a very striking way. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. So Satan is kind of likened to this strong man. But then he says, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. He, he plunders the strong man. This, this one stronger than the strong man plunders the strong man, takes away his captives, frees his captives. Let's look 11, 20, 22. You know, Satan knows that we are sinners deserving of God's judgment and death. You know, you know why Satan has this power over us? Because he brings accusations against us. And friends, the, the reality is that his accusations against us are true. You ever think about that? His accusations against us are true. We are rebels who have rejected God. We are sinners in God's sight. And, and that's the, the power of the devil over us. He brings these accusations against us and we have nothing to say because he's right. We need someone outside of us 
Right? We, we need someone stronger than us. We need someone indeed stronger than Satan to defeat the devil. And, and Jesus says in Luke 11, he is the one stronger than Satan. But friends, the surprise is that he conquers not through force, but he conquers through the humiliation of the cross. That's the surprising twist of the gospel. He took God's wrath on himself and he died in, in seeming defeat. But, but that apparent defeat was no defeat at all. It, it was a, a resounding victory over Satan's sin and death. He died for sinners like us so that we can be freely forgiven and made right with God. He died for us so that when Satan points his accusing finger against us and says, this one is mine, Jesus says, no, he's not. I've paid the price for him. He's free. He's no longer bound by sin. He's no longer bound by the penalty of death. Friends, this, one, this, this is true of us. If we have trusted in Christ, we can say to Satan, yes, you're right, I'm a sinner, but there's one stronger than you who has died for me, and I'm free, free from your clutches. And after three days, Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life. And because of what Christ has done, because of what Christ has done, Satan's accusations have no more power over us. Friends, do your consciences accuse you? Do your consciences accuse you? I know, I know mine does. Right? My, my conscience often says to me, you, you can't be a Christian, let alone a pastor. What do we say when our conscience accuses us? True, but I trust in a Savior who died for me. I trust in one stronger than me who has set me free. And yes, I struggle with sin, but I have a Savior who is gracious and merciful, whose, whose compassion encompasses the, the oppressed, the poor, the needy, the vulnerable, those who can do nothing to help themselves. Yes, I, I follow such a Savior, and I'm free. Because of Jesus, the one who has the power of death has been destroyed. And Jesus has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's a wonderful verse from Hebrews 2, 15. And by healing the woman, Jesus shows that he is God's king who has come to free the captives. Therefore, we must know the time right, that the king has come. Today is the day of salvation. The woman recognizes this and she glorified God. She recognizes that Jesus is doing God's work. Right? So she makes the connection. Right? I'm, I'm healed by this man, Jesus, and this man, Jesus, is doing God's work. Therefore, I glorify God. Right? So she's making those connections and she believed that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to save. And, and the irony in our passage is that the person who is the most religious fails to see this. It's a sad irony in our passage, right? That the synagogue ruler, a religious leader, whom we expect would know better, 
I, I bet you he knows the scriptures way better than this woman. But he fails to discern the time. And instead of praising God, he gets angry with Jesus because he had healed on the Sabbath. It's a tragic irony of our passage. Now, the Old Testament law commanded that no work be done on the Sabbath. It was to be a holy day, consecrated to God. However, the religious leaders of Jesus' time had added their own traditions and customs to the Sabbath laws. And friends, the more they multiplied demands, that the more they added layers and layers of stipulations and requirements, the more they lost sight of why God had given the Sabbath in the first place. And we, we kind of joke about layers of bureaucracy. And we have so many layers of bureaucracy that you forget why the policy was written in the first place. I think that's exactly what's happening here. So many layers of regulations that these religious leaders had forgotten why they're keeping the Sabbath in the first place. And Jesus says elsewhere, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to be a gracious weekly reminder of how God would ultimately give his people rest through his son. But the religious leaders made the the Sabbath a burden rather than a delight. Friends, religion cannot save us. In fact, relying on man-made religious rules and traditions actually robs us of true joy. Relying on religious traditions and rules, thinking that we are right, actually blinds us from the grace of God. It, it, it keeps us from experiencing God's grace in Jesus Christ. So we're confronted with a question in this text. Who or what are we trusting in to make us right with God? Who or what are we truly trusting in to make us right with God? Doing religious things doesn't make us a Christian. We become a follower of Jesus by trusting in Him alone to be our Saviour and our Lord. Relying on man-made religious rules and traditions can blind us to what God is doing in the world. And this synagogue ruler fails to realise that salvation has come. The time has come for salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And not only does he reject Jesus, he even gets upset when others receive grace from Jesus. You see how, you see how upside down uh, this, this situation is. The religious man doesn't see a daughter of Abraham in need. He only sees her as a nuisance, an obstacle getting in the way of his own religiosity. It's tragic. We need to ask ourselves this. Do we care more about religious rules and traditions than we care about people? Do we care more about our own religious rules and traditions than we care about people? Do we have a critical spirit that puts others down because our religious rules are not being adhered to? I think this passage reveals the destructiveness of legalism. Legalism harms ourselves. Legalism also hurts others. 
because we treat them in unloving, ungracious, impatient ways. And Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. If, if they can allow their animals to be led away to water on the Sabbath, then how much more should God's mercy be shown on the Sabbath? He says these words in verse 16, Ought not this woman, you know, isn't it necessary that this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You, know, you care so much about your possessions, about your animals. Shouldn't this woman, who is made in God's image, a daughter of Abraham, shouldn't she be saved on this day? In fact, God wanted, to keep, God wanted Israel to keep the Sabbath so that they would remember how he had freed them from slavery in Egypt. So the Sabbath was meant to be this glorious remembrance of God's redemption. Now, how fitting then is it that on this Sabbath, Jesus frees this woman as, as that supreme display of God's redemption? How appropriate it is. And, and yet, this synagogue ruler fails to see that. All, all he's concerned about is his religious rules, and he fails to see God's grace at work. Friends, don't miss God's grace. Don't miss God's grace. The key issue is not about rules, but over who rules. That's the key issue. Who rules? Jesus tells us, or rather Luke, the way he records it in verse 15, notice he calls Jesus the Lord. The Lord. Luke is reminding us that the person who's saying this is not just another religious teacher, it's not just a man, but he's the Lord. And if we trust him, the king who has come, we shall enter God's kingdom. But surprisingly, self-righteous religious people who think they are good enough on their own to get in, they will be the ones who will be left out of God's kingdom. So what will we do with Jesus? Will we rejoice at the glorious things done by him? Let's move on to the second point also about God's kingdom. God's kingdom is growing, but from unexpected beginnings. We see that this in two parables, in verses 18 to 21. Now, the Jews were expecting a majestic earthly kingdom established by a mighty military messiah who would come and defeat the Romans and kick them out. And so the religious leaders assumed that they would be in the kingdom because they saw themselves as basically good people as moral religious people, better than the rest of the Jews and clearly better than the Gentiles. But God's kingdom turns our expectations upside down. Instead of a powerful earthly king, the Messiah comes as a humble servant who wins by losing, right? He wins by dying. Instead of aligning with the influential insiders of society, Jesus hangs out with the poor, hangs out with the oppressed, it draws near to the marginalized. Those who thought they were good people surprisingly distanced themselves from Jesus, whereas those who understood themselves as broken, needy sinners, they were the ones who came near to Jesus. You see how upside down this kingdom is when it comes. 
Now, friends, we're often drawn by worldly success, cleverness, power, and influence. These things attract us. They get our attention. Right? Our, our weeks are spent reading stories about such things. Power, wealth, success, cleverness, influence. But wanting our best life now is actually a worldly way of thinking about God's kingdom. Now, Jesus says these words to us in Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, hardly a recipe for worldly success. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves and to this world. For this reason, the gospel looks very weak. The gospel looks foolish to us, especially in the eyes of the world. The gospel undermines human pride and self-centeredness. The gospel calls us to embrace weakness, to embrace suffering, to embrace self-sacrifice. Very countercultural. The gospel bids us to die to ourselves, that we may find true life in someone else, in Christ. And so Jesus tells us two parables about the kingdom to help us understand the upside-down logic of the gospel. What is the kingdom like? Now, in the first parable, Jesus compares the kingdom to a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, verse 19. Now, mustard seed is very small, but after being planted, the seed grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Now, the parable's main point is a simple one. The kingdom is like this mustard seed. It starts surprisingly small, but it grows into something sizable and significant. Small beginning, sizable end. Right? That's, that's the point of the parable. And now, the image of a tree with birds in its branches actually comes from the Old Testament, particularly the prophet Ezekiel. You know, listen to this, these verses from Ezekiel 17. Ezekiel says, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off the topmost of his young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. You know, mountains in the Old Testament are often associated with kingdoms. So on the, king, on the mountain of height of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. And so Jesus is alluding to this passage in Ezekiel 17, when he says that this tree will grow, and under it will nest birds of every kind. So God's kingdom may not look like much now in the world's eyes, but God promises to make high the low tree, and to make the dry tree flourish. God's kingdom will be far more glorious than any worldly kingdom. The proud kingdoms of this world will be humbled. And they will not last. 
but God's kingdom will stand forever. Friends, do, do we see this about God's kingdom? Do we, do we realize that this kingdom is the one worth living for? That's why when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, he's not saying to us, go throw your life away. He's actually saying to us, find true life. Live for something that really matters. Live for something that truly endures. In fact, don't throw your life away. Use it well. The birds making nests in the tree is a picture of how God will bring people from every nation, every culture, every tongue, every tribe into his kingdom. It's a wonderful picture of God as a missionary, gathering the nations to himself, giving them a place in his kingdom. This world has become more divided and polarized. I'm not sure if you follow the papers, but that's the sense I get as I read the news every day. This pandemic has simply exposed the fault lines around our world, the fault lines of racism, the fault lines of xenophobia, and other forms of hatred. You know, friends, foreigners in Singapore are becoming more worried about not being welcome here. This is the world in which we live in. What a contrast we find in this passage where God is a missionary who delights in gathering the nations. So as, as, as God's people, how might we also be distinct in welcoming those who are not like us into our community so that we may love them and serve them with the gospel? Now, Jesus' second parable makes a similar point to the first one. That's why they come in a pair. Jesus says, God's kingdom will grow even if this isn't always obvious to us now. And he likens the kingdom to leaven, like a woman took and, and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. You know, it's, it's, a funny, it's, a fu it's quite an unusual comparison because normally leaven in the Bible is something negative, but Jesus uses leaven here in a positive sense. Right, the kingdom is like leaven that this woman puts into this flour. Now, three measures is a lot of flour. Three measures is about 20 kilograms of flour. Enough to bake bread for a very large banquet. So that's how much flour there is. So, so Jesus is saying the kingdom is like this small amount of yeast, a small amount of leaven that you put into this huge amount of flour, and then soon this leaven permeates and penetrates the whole volume of flour. Right? It, it seems very small, but it grows. Right? That's the point that Jesus is making about the kingdom. The kingdom is like that small amount of yeast. And the kingdom starts seemingly small and insignificant, but it will eventually permeate and transform the whole world. But we don't really see it, right? You, you don't see yeast at work. And those of us who bake, I, I, I don't bake, but my wife bakes a lot, and she's a good baker, but I trust her. <laughs> so, so when she puts yeast in, in dough, you don't see the yeast working, but you know it is. You, know, you kind of see the effects over time, right? The, the dough rises. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying about the kingdom as well. A small amount is needed. You don't, you don't really see it working visibly, but it is working. And soon the dough rises and it permeates the whole lump. 
You know, one of my favorite children's books is The Little Prince. You know, some of you may have read that, The Little Prince. And, and this, The Little Prince has this wonderful quote in, in one of his chapters. I think it's the fox, the, char- the fox character who says it to The Little Prince. And he says, what is essential is invisible to the eye. That's a profound statement in a children's book. What is essential is invisible to the eye. And I think that's exactly the point that Jesus is making here as well. The kingdom of God is essential, but it's often invisible to us. We don't see it working. The kingdom's glory may be hidden now, but it is surely growing. And its growth is guaranteed. So Jesus wants us to know the time so that we have a big vision of what God is doing in the world. Because if we don't realize that God's kingdom is growing, we tend to default to living for our small, petty fiefdoms. The kingdoms of this world will look very attractive if we don't realize that the kingdom of God is what really matters, and it is growing. We trust God that it is growing. The kingdoms of this world, even if they look impressive now, will pass away. But God's kingdom will endure forever. So how are we living by faith and not by sight? Right? How are we living by faith and not by sight? Don't base your life on what you can see with your worldly eyes. Don't base your evaluation of Jesus according to the flesh, but base your evaluation of Jesus according to what he says about himself and his kingdom and his word. You know, many of us would be willing to make lifestyle changes based on a doctor's prognosis, right? You know, we go to the doctor, doctor says, if you don't do this, this will happen to you. So, okay, okay, got to watch my lifestyle now. So we, we make those changes. But friends, we, we, have a, we have a fail-safe prognosis here in our text. Jesus is telling us what will happen in the future, for sure. And this is certain. If, if we are willing to change our life based on the fallible doctor's prognosis, how much more should we be changing our lives based on Jesus' prognosis? The kingdom of God is here. It is growing. Nothing will stop it. Is that, isn't that enough for us to really change our lives? Why aren't we changing our lives? The world may think us foolish for putting God's kingdom first. But Jim Elliot, a missionary who was killed in South, Af- South America some 60 years ago, he put it well. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, this is the time that we live in. God's kingdom is already here because God's king has come. And Jesus is coming back to bring the kingdom in its full glory. Therefore, now is the time for us to put away our former lives and to live for Jesus so that we might become citizens of his kingdom and be ready for his return. And the good news of these parables is that we will not be disappointed. We will not be disappointed if we give our lives to Christ and put his kingdom first. So these parables give us encouragement to keep living for Jesus, to keep speaking of Him. These parables give us strength so that we do not lose heart, even in times when 
we don't, we don't see immediate fruit. These parables help us to remain faithful and to trust God that He is the one who builds His kingdom. That's why Paul can say these words, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. C.T. Studd was a famous sportsman who played cricket for England in the late 1800s. During that time, his brother fell seriously sick. And, and this left C.T. Studd with a bit of a crisis of faith. I mean, he grew up in a Christian family, but in his own words, I think he had always been quite nominal in thinking about the faith. Then his brother fell seriously ill, and then he began to question his faith. He, he began to think about, what am I really living for? And he asked these words. He said these words, What is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? And that was the moment he decided to give himself to follow Jesus and live for him. And a few years later, he joined Hudson Taylor as a missionary in China. And then later on in his life, he wrote the words of this famous poem. And I pray that these words will also move us to consider the time in which we live and to consider what we are living for and to consider who we are living for. He wrote these words, Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and for thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, let's pray together. Gracious Father, indeed, you are the sovereign God of the universe. You're the one who has made all things, and you fashion all things according to your wisdom for your glory. And Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that you have sent your Son to reveal the kingdom to us. Father, we thank you that he is the king who has come to lay down his life to rescue and to free unworthy sinners that we have sold ourselves into slavery. But by your grace, you have intervened powerfully in time, in history, and you have rescued those who are enslaved, freed us from the devil, freed us from sin and death. And Father, we pray that as we hear your word, as we hear this gospel, we pray that you would help us to turn to you, remove any hindrances to faith, Help us to see Christ with the eyes of faith, not with the eyes of this world, but with the eyes of faith, that we would see him as precious, that we would see his kingdom as glorious, even if we don't visibly see it now, but help us to trust you, to believe what your word says about the kingdom, and help us to seek first this glorious kingdom and this glorious king, that we might find true life in him. So, Father, we pray that your Spirit would move powerfully in us. We pray that you would work, because you alone can build this kingdom. None of us can do it. And, and so we cry out to you for help. We pray that you would move powerfully by your Spirit. Draw us near to you, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us now. And we pray this in his name. Amen.